You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, Episode 20, for June 15th, 2008. Warning. This episode contains mature themes and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hey there, Metamorphs! Welcome back to the Metamorph City Podcast. This is Chris Lester, your host, and I'm going to keep this intro short because I've got to hurry up and get this episode finished. By the time you hear this, I will be back in the Bay Area for a job interview at one of the local charter schools. I'm very excited about this, and I want to get this episode in the can as soon as possible so I can focus on preparing for my sample lesson. This will be my first time leading a class for a group of ninth graders, and I want to do the best job for them that I can. Now then, here's chapter 12 of Making the Cut. But first, how about a little taste of... The story so far. Danny Shirabi's first full day as a woman ended with decidedly mixed results. In Chapter 11, she went on a date with Jared Tamlin, a handsome but very low-powered telepath, whom she met at a dance club the previous night. She found out that Jared was a psychologist for the Metamore City Police Department, that he hadn't discovered his powers until he was a teenager, and that he'd stayed in the mundane world rather than join the collective and be marginalized the way Daniel was. Danny confessed that she was an androgyne, and still new to dating men, But Jared wasn't bothered by the idea, as long as Danny didn't expect him to have sex with her in her male form. As the evening progressed and the wine flowed, the sense of connection between them deepened, until finally Danny kissed Jared. To their mutual surprise, this kiss triggered a wave of raw animal lust in Danny, and she tried to force Jared to have sex with her. With a tremendous effort of will, Jared resisted the temptation telling Danny that she was drunk and he wouldn't take advantage of that. He took her straight home and she collapsed on her bed to sulk. The next morning, Danny returned to her senses and wondered what on earth had gotten into her. She focused on her memories of Rebecca and the love that they'd shared when Danny was Daniel. This allowed Danny to finally shift back to her male form for the first time since taking the potion. Daniel called Evan Salindi, the androgyne runner who had supplied that potion. He told him what had happened to Danny the night before. Daniel suspected that someone had enchanted Danny and was using magic to reshape her mind. Evan agreed that the loss of control Danny had displayed wasn't normal, even for an androgyne, and they agreed to meet at the magic shop where Evan had acquired the potion. Hopefully, the wizard who ran the place would be able to identify the cause behind Danny's loss of control and figure out a way to fix it. Chapter 12 Daniel was already waiting for Evan outside Spells for You when the androgyne arrived at five minutes to noon. Even on a Sunday afternoon, Evan was dressed to impress. His white sport coat shone brilliantly in the midday sun, and the collarless red shirt underneath it looked like it had come straight from the cleaners. Even his jeans looked classy on him. His violet eyes were tight with worry as he approached. Is he there yet? Daniel gestured at one of the signs in the window, which had CLOSED FOR BUSINESS, printed in bright orange letters on a black field. 
Beneath this, someone had written in silver permanent marker, This means you, Callie. Friendly, Daniel said. Would that be our Callie by any chance? Uh, girl never could keep to a regular schedule, always waking people up at insane hours to help with bizarre problems. You'd get along famously, I think. <laughs> Very funny. Are you going to knock or shall I? Best be me. The last thing we need is you starting off on the wrong foot with him. At that moment, the sign flipped over on its own, showing more orange text that said, The wizard is in. There was a clack as the bolts on the glass double doors released themselves, followed by a sparkle of golden light that Daniel suspected was a sign of magic wards disengaging. One of the doors swung inward, and there was a jangling noise as it struck the chain of bells hanging just inside. A wizened old man with a long and fluffy white beard appeared from behind one of the store shelves. He cinched his star-spangled blue bathrobe more tightly around his waist, then pulled out an enormous cone-shaped hat covered with astrological symbols and settled it on top of his woolly head. He adjusted his pince-nez and gestured to them irritably. Well, come on then. What do you need, an engraved invitation? Daniel hurried inside, with Evan following behind him. Sorry, he said, bowing to the old man in greeting. We weren't sure if you were in yet. I'm- you are Daniel Shirabi, sometimes known as Danny Shirabi, the telepath who will sacrifice anything for the love of Rebecca Brower. And you are here because you believe that you have been ensorcelled by something other than my potion. Daniel gaped. He shot an accusing look at Evan, but the androgyne held up his hands and shook his head. Daniel looked back at the old man. How did you know that? The old man glared at him from beneath bushy brows, then pointed to a large wooden sign on the shop wall behind him. It said, Because I'm a wizard, that's how. Try to keep up, Master Shirabi. He turned and walked toward the back of the shop, gesturing for them to follow. Daniel looked at Evan, who shrugged. I told you he was a cranky git. Ever the charmer, Master Selindy, Artax called back. Why don't you do us all a favor and hand the reins over to Mistress Ava? I dare say it would improve the scenery for all of us. Evan shook his head and followed the wizard, and Daniel went with him. She still thinks you're a dirty old man, Artax. Artax laughed, <laughs> a dry cackle that made the hairs on the back of Daniel's neck stand on end. Absolutely! Haven't you ever heard that the good die young boy? Personally, I intend to live forever. They came to the back of the shop, where a long wooden counter was covered with alchemical equipment. Behind it was a doorway to a storeroom. Artax gestured for them to remain where they were, then vanished inside for a long moment before returning with a pair of goggles, two cheap white filter masks, and a small amber glass jar. The wizard put on the goggles and one of the masks, then handed the other to Evan, who quickly put it on. This may tingle a little, Artax said, unscrewing the cap on the jar. Daniel leaned forward to try to see what was in the jar. Why, what is... Ah! The old man tossed the contents of the jar in Daniel's face, releasing a cloud of glittering orange dust. The particles began glowing almost immediately, then flew into Daniel's open nose and mouth like a swarm of unusually curious gnats. Daniel coughed and gagged as a prickling, tingling sensation filled his lungs, then gradually settled itself inside his head. What in the hells was that? Artax peered up at him through the goggles, which were now glowing the same shade of orange as the dust. Enchantment tracers, Master Shirabi. 
Think of them as a barium milkshake for the mind. If anyone has altered your thoughts through use of magic, these little wonders will make the changes stand out for easier examination. Oh. Daniel shifted his weight from one foot to the other, watching as the little wizard walked around him and examined him from all sides. Hmm. What? What is it? Artax ignored him. Interesting. Would you mind changing back into female form, Master Shirabi? Um, Daniel looked over at Evan. Here? Yes, boy. Here. Now. Before the tracers fade out. But my clothes... Oh, stars above, Artax muttered. He pulled out a wand and gestured at Daniel, showering his clothes in a brief spray of white light. I've just put an auto-fit enchantment on your clothes. Now change, boy! Daniel gulped and closed his eyes, thinking hard about how he wanted very much to become Danny before the wizard got any more upset with him. The shifting began almost immediately, and in less than ten seconds, Danny stood there in Daniel's place, her body shivering with the after-effects of the rapid transformation. Very nice, Artax said approvingly, reaching up to run a finger over one of Danny's hairless cheeks. Some of my best work, if I do say so myself. You want to check my teeth, too? Danny muttered. I'm sure we could put your mouth to any number of fine uses, Miss Shirabi. But time presses, so we'll have to settle for one. Master Selindi, if you would be so kind as to kiss our newly minted maiden... Danny took a step back. Excuse me? Don't be obtuse, girl. How do you expect to find out if you're ensorcelled without a little experimentation? Danny turned to find Evan right in front of her. He had already pulled off the breather mask and now wore an awkward smile instead. You really do look fabulous, Danny. Danny rolled her eyes and sighed. All right, fine. Come here. She put her arms around Evan's neck and pressed her lips to his. The kiss was brief, chaste, and utterly failed to cause her world to explode with the power of a thousand suns. Artax snorted. You call that a kiss? Again, like you mean it. Danny and Evan looked at each other helplessly and shrugged. The second kiss was longer and carried a small spark of what Danny had felt when she kissed Ava. When they parted, though, Danny's mind was still clear. She felt a little flushed, but that was due at least as much to her embarrassment as it was to any attraction between her and Evan. Hmm, Artax said. He pulled off the goggles and the breather mask and scowled up at Danny. Well? Nothing. Apart from the pseudo-curse, your mind shows no evidence of magical tampering. Danny stared at him. Are you... She had been about to ask, are you sure, but the old man's expression stopped her cold. Instead, she asked, What about telepathy? Could you see it if a teep messed with my head? Artax smirked. I thought you might ask about that, he said, nodding. You realize, of course, that magic and psionics don't normally interact. A spell ward can't block a telepath's powers, for instance, and an esper can't sense magical fields. Danny nodded. But there are exceptions, right? The elders taught us mind shields that they said would block out mind-reading spells. I'm sure they did. Magic and Psy interaction isn't impossible, it's just... complicated. Luckily for you, I've been working on exactly this problem for a while now. Come on in the back room. The wizard led them through a storeroom that was easily the size of a large warehouse. 
A seemingly endless array of long metal shelves rose ten meters from floor to ceiling, stocked with boxes and crates labeled in dozens of different languages, including Elvish, Yamatoan, and something that Danny suspected was draconic. Here and there, Danny saw tall, wheeled staircases like the ones seen in larger libraries, as well as a forklift that had a large array of crystals and runes where the driver's seat should have been. Artax took them to a small office in the back left corner of the warehouse. Its plain white walls and pressboard furniture seemed more suited to a cheap home office than the inner sanctum of a master wizard. The only decorations on the wall were a pin-up calendar from a famous men's magazine and a large clock in the shape of a black-and-white cat. The cat's tail formed the pendulum of the clock, and its large cartoon eyes moved back and forth across the room in time with the tail. Danny wasn't sure if she had seen anything quite so tacky before in her life, and that included Artax's hat and Nathan's bust of Tiffany Angel. Here we are, Artax said, gesturing at a plastic chair in front of a rectangular table. Have a seat, girl. While Danny did as instructed, Artax gestured with his wand and muttered something in a language she didn't recognize. From the opposite side of the office, a huge metal contraption rose off of its shelf and floated over to the table, coming to rest in front of Danny. It looked a little bit like the machines used to take wraparound x-rays at the dentist's office, if such a device had been built by a sadistic Daedra with a love for crystals, vacuum tubes, and leather straps. What do I do with this? Artax rolled his eyes. Stick your head in it, of course. He gestured to a vaguely helmet-shaped portion of the device. Awkwardly, Danny leaned forward and put her head inside, placing her eyes over the two rubber eye cups and bracing her forehead against a leather strap. Immediately, other straps tightened around her head and neck, holding her firmly in place. Comfy? Evan asked. Oh, it's lovely, Danny said sourly. Why don't we have you try it next, just for giggles? Quiet, both of you. Artax fluttered around the machine, adjusting knobs and dials and flicking switches. After a minute or two, he was apparently satisfied, because Danny could no longer hear him or sense him nearby. There was nothing to look at inside the eye cups, except for darkness and the vague, hallucinatory patterns that the eyes conjure for themselves when they are deprived of light. All right, let's try it. Evan, clear out. This is all experimental magitech, so I don't want you to get too close and foul something up. Ready, Danny? Danny took a deep breath. As ready as I'll ever be. In four, three, two, one. A kaleidoscope of light exploded across Danny's vision. She felt something inside her mind. Not a telepathic presence, exactly, but something more alien and impersonal. It scurried through her thoughts like a large metal insect with a built-in camera, taking snapshots and sending them back out of her head down a long wire connected to its abdomen. It seemed drawn to traumatic and unusual memories, including her date with Jared and the disaster at the Skyport. But rather than looking at the remembered images themselves, it seemed to be examining the psychological foundations in which the memories were anchored. Danny thought of an engineer examining a damaged building, looking for cracks in the load-bearing walls so he could decide whether to repair the structure or rebuild it from scratch. The process seemed to take forever. Finally, the lights went out, the crawling sensation in her head ceased, and the straps released their hold on Danny's head. She pulled herself out of the device and looked up at Artax, 
who was seated at his desk and studying a set of incomprehensible-looking data on his computer. Well, what do you see? Danny asked, nearly breathless with anticipation. Artax frowned and paged through a few more screens full of results. Nothing. Danny blinked. What? Nothing out of the ordinary, I should say. Telepathic gestalts seem to leave a mark on the psyche, but that's hardly unexpected, and usually isn't invasive. The sort of radical personality shift that you described would leave big, noticeable scars if it were done telepathically. You can't make a change that big without causing damage unless you do it slowly and carefully. Like the therapists who rebuild the minds of the criminally insane. Visited any mental hospitals lately? Evan asked. Danny shot him a dirty look. This doesn't make any sense, she said, looking back at Artax. Please, sir, I'm not trying to contradict you, but I know what I felt. If it's not magic and it's not telepathy, what could it be? Artax got up from his chair, came around the desk, and leaned back against it, stroking his beard thoughtfully. You said that the key thing that was different was the desire, yes? You still had the same thoughts, but they weren't important, because your desires had changed. Denny nodded. There is a theory, a hypothesis really, that desire stems from three sources. Artax lifted a finger. The first source is what we call the animal mind, or the biological body. These sorts of desires are driven by basic biological imperatives. Your body needs energy, so you feel hunger. Your blood's getting too thick, so you feel thirsty. You need to reproduce, so you feel horny. Simple hindbrain stuff. The animal mind doesn't care how its needs get met, as long as they're met quickly. Got it. Danny said. This was all familiar territory, at least so far. Artax raised a second finger. The second source of desire is the conscious mind. These are the desires that stem from your long-term goals, complicated objectives that the animal mind doesn't have the brains to think about. You want to make good money and have a satisfying career, so you desire to go to university. You want your children to be taken care of, so you desire a spouse whom you enjoy living with and who you know is responsible. Incidentally, this is also where desires come from that are motivated by your experiences. If you've ever been mugged, you might feel a very strong desire to buy a gun or learn how to fight so you can protect yourself if it ever happens again. And all of that happens in the cerebral cortex. Exactly. Complicated thoughts like those require complicated brain space to work in. A rat can't feel those kinds of desires because it doesn't have the framework to even come up with them. He held up his third finger. But the third class of desire is the kind for which no biological or conscious motivator can be determined. Danny frowned. Like what? Surely every desire has to come down to a combination of your biological needs or your conscious needs. Studies with twins tell us otherwise, Artax said. Two people, genetically identical, raised in the same home, often treated as if they were interchangeable because the damned fool parents don't know any better. So why does one decide to be a doctor while the other wants to be an astronaut? Why does one love Pyralian food while the other can't stand it? Why does one love the color orange and the other one won't have orange anywhere in his house? These aren't choices where one is notably better or worse than the other. So why do the twins choose differently? Danny thought about that. Maybe just a desire to be different from each other? Maybe subconsciously they have a biological need to be recognized as distinct people. Maybe that will improve their odds of reproductive success if they can make themselves unique from each other. Maybe, Artax allowed. Or maybe there are needs inside of us that are deeper than achieving goals or satisfying our biological cravings. 
Why do people create art? Why invent music? Why do people feel the need to worship something, be it a celebrity or a dryad or an unseen creator? Danny had wondered about that one for years, and she still didn't feel any closer to an answer. Artax seemed to read that in her eyes. That's the crux of the hypothesis. There are desires that come from neither the hindbrain nor the conscious mind, but from the spark of individuality that resides in each one of us and makes us unique. These are the desires of the spiritual mind, the desires of the soul. Danny sat back in her chair. It's an interesting thought, I'll grant you, she said. But what does that have to do with me? My reactions to Jared seem to be pretty hindbrain-oriented. But see, that's the thing, Artax said, pointing at her. If someone had just screwed with your libido, you would have had the same reaction to Evan. You didn't, and the enchantment tracer showed no sign of your biological impulses being manipulated. Likewise, the cerebral scanner showed no evidence of changes to your conscious thought patterns. He tugged on a lock of his hair, twisting it around his finger. No. I think whatever happened to you was a change at the level of the soul. A chill ran down Danny's spine at those words. But who would want to change my soul? Artax raised one bushy eyebrow. That's a good question. A better question is, who could? Danny and Evan exchanged a look. Of course, it might not be a person at all. It might be some sort of natural response to what you've been going through. The most useful lore on the nature of the soul was done by the necromancers, and most of it was lost 10,000 years ago. The field has hardly been touched ever since. And even someone like Richter, Talia, or Agemnos probably doesn't know the tenth part of what there is to know about such things. We know that the soul is an organic thing. You can share pieces of it with another, lose a part of it, grow it back again. But we can't do much in the way of analyzing it, and we can't interview it except through the filter of the conscious mind, because the soul, on its own, doesn't have a brain to think with. So what are you saying? Danny asked, frowning. That my soul decided to turn me into a raving slut when Jared kissed me? Artax made a <laughs> noncommittal grunt. You've certainly put yourself under an amazing amount of pressure to conform to the collective's way of doing things. Maybe it's possible that you have a soul-deep need for belonging that's so intense that it drove your breeding instincts into full thrust when you met a man you could actually have sex with. Danny buried her head in her hands. In other words, I'm a slut. It wasn't a pleasant thought, and tears came to her eyes just from considering it. All this time I thought I was doing everything for Rebecca, she thought. And apparently I just wanted to get fucked. Artax offered her a handkerchief. Gods, he is old. Who uses a handkerchief anymore? She dabbed her eyes and blew her nose. If I were you, Miss Shirabi, I would pray that there's nothing more to it than that. Pray to whatever gods you serve that, in your heart of hearts, you really are a raving slut. Because the alternative explanation is that there is someone out there with the power to change people's souls. To change the deepest desires of their hearts without leaving a trace of magical or telepathic evidence. He looked at each of them, his expression dour. I don't know about you, but I'd rather deal with being a raving slut than have a world with a monster like that living in it.
Artax's words haunted Danny all through the bus ride home. She'd tried to change back to Daniel before leaving the magic shop, but her thoughts were scattered, and she couldn't really summon up a compelling reason to change back. All of her thoughts of Rebecca were clouded over by the memories of her date with Jared. She'd always believed that a future with Rebecca was what she wanted more than anything, but her recent experiences seemed to make a mockery of that idea. Was she really so desperate for belonging that she was ready to give everything to the first male teep that she made a connection with? Would she do the same thing again for the next man who came along? And just as importantly, had Daniel always had these tendencies and just never realized it? She thought back to Daniel's teenage years and tried to remember what his sexual encounters had been like. Though he had known Rebecca the longest, and she was the only girl Daniel would have said he loved, he had been with other girls, and Rebecca had been with other people as well. Sexual experimentation was expected among teenagers in the creche, and the resulting bonds often played a major part in the formation of breeding cells. The fact that Daniel was tall, athletic, and good-looking had also made him popular with the girls, back before his low power rating had become such a stigma. Still, Danny couldn't remember any of those girls having the same kind of effect on Daniel that Rebecca had. She couldn't be sure, but it definitely seemed like her reaction to Jared was a sign of a major change in her psyche. That conclusion left several possible implications, none of them good. A small and desperate part of her brain still held on to the idea that someone had changed her, that some unseen monster had reached inside her soul and made her want things that she wasn't supposed to want. The idea was horrifying, but at least it meant that there was a chance that someone could reverse whatever had been done to her. Of course, that would entail finding whoever it was who hypothetically had this power to alter her soul. She briefly considered the possibility that Jared had done it, but she soon discarded the idea as ludicrous. She'd never even heard of such a power before, and surely the Collective would have discovered it if he did have it. Besides, Jared had behaved honorably with her. He'd gone to great efforts to stop her from having sex with him in her altered state, despite his obvious desire to do so. Somehow she didn't think that a person would brainwash someone and then refuse to take advantage of the benefits. She sighed and slumped her head against the window of the skimmer bus. No, like it or not, she couldn't blame her actions on a monster that probably didn't even exist. This was apparently something she'd done to herself. The loneliness, the shock and isolation because of Del and Trace's deaths, the need to really belong to the Hive. All of those factors must have combined with the effects of the androgyne spell, and something inside her had shifted radically as a result. She wasn't sure if it qualified as going insane or just as an unpleasant epiphany, but somehow she'd gone from a single-minded devotion to Rebecca to being the woman who couldn't say no. At least where other telepaths are involved. Apparently her subconscious survival instincts were still intact, since she hadn't had any response to the kiss with Evan. She was grateful for that much, at least. If Danny Shirabi was fated to be a slut, at least she wouldn't end up dragging some poor Mundy down into an unbreakable gestalt. A slut. Even in her head, the word sounded dirty and shameful, and she winced at the thought of it. She didn't want to think of herself that way, but the evidence for it seemed pretty strong. Then again, what does the word mean, anyway? Was it just a woman who liked to have a lot of sex? Hells, that was every androgyne. And a whole lot of other people, too. Was it a woman who had sex with a lot of different partners? The sensualists did that, and got paid well for it. But theirs was a respected profession. 
Was it a woman whose sexual appetites were somehow deviant or outside the norm? Well, by most people's way of thinking, the Psy Collective already fell into that category. Not too many Mundys would understand the rationale behind the breeding cells, or the reason why they worked. Was it a woman who wouldn't refuse sex from anyone? If so, that didn't apply to Danny. She'd already demonstrated that she could control herself around Mundys like Evan. Well, admittedly, there had been the incident with Ava on the dance floor, but she'd been new to the curse's effects at that point, and wasn't prepared for her heightened sex drive. She was confident that if she found herself in the same position now, she'd do a better job of restraining herself. Now that she thought about it, Danny couldn't see any rational reason for why the whole stigma of the slut even existed. As long as she was careful to use protection and stayed away from the mundanes, why should it matter who she wanted to sleep with? If she liked Jared and wanted to have sex with him, why should she feel ashamed of that? Why should she keep punishing herself by holding on to the notion of some idealized fairy tale romance that would never happen? Why shouldn't she enjoy herself in the here and now? The skimmer bus dropped her off at the usual corner, and Danny strode back to her apartment with a sense of purpose. Once she got inside, she went immediately to the telephone. A flashing light on the handset showed her that there was a message waiting. She pushed the playback button. Hey Dee, it's me, Rebecca's voice said. I know you said we'd talk later, but it's been a few days since... Well, since everything happened. I wanted to check and make sure you're doing okay. She paused, and Danny could sense her hesitancy. Look, just give me a call when you get a chance, okay? I miss you, and... There's, um... Well, there's some stuff going on. I could be kind of busy here pretty soon, and I want to see you again before... Well, before. So yeah, call me, Kay. Love ya. The machine beeped. You have no more messages. Danny looked at the phone for a long moment, considering. She turned on the handset, started dialing Rebecca's number, then stopped and turned it off again. There was no going back to the way things used to be, and she was sick of hurting all the time. Let it be. She whispered to herself. Just let it be. Reaching down, she pushed the button to erase the old messages. Then she dialed a different number. The phone picked up on the second ring. Danny? I want to see you, Jared. Danny said. Her voice was clear and certain. As soon as you can get here. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast right after these messages. Have you ever had one of those days? You know the kind I'm talking about. You assassinate a guy that you're convinced is a demon, only to find out that he isn't. Then you have to go and tell your friends, family, and pastor what you've done, and deal with the repercussions. What? You don't know what that's like? Well, Matt York certainly does. There is a battle being fought in the streets for men's souls, and without knowing it, he has fired the first shot. Come find out what all this is about in the new podcast novel by Scott Roach called Archangel, Valley of the Shadow of Death. You can find it and more at www.spiritualtramp.com. See you there. This is Edward G. Talbot author of the podcast novel, New World Orders, www 
www.edwardgtalbot.com. And I have a question for you. Do you think you know what's going on? Do you think the CIA killed Kennedy? Or that politicians in Washington, D.C. are actually in charge? And what about global warming? Is it a left-wing hallucination? A right-wing cover-up? Or maybe it's neither. Maybe the truth is far more sinister. There is a conspiracy. But it's not just one party. And it's not to protect anything as mundane as billion-dollar profits. Of course, it's just a novel. Right? Go to www.edwardgtalbot.com and listen to New World Orders now, before it's too late. Hi there, this is Patrick Rothfuss, author of The Name of the Wind, and you're listening to the Metamore City Podcast. Thanks, Patrick. We are back. And before I get back to my lesson planning, I've got time for a little bit of feedback. Hi, this is Ren. Um, I just followed you over from Ravy. I haven't finished all the episodes yet, but you're doing great. Oh, and I could listen to Liam maybe read the phone book all day long, so don't feel bad. All right, talk to you later. Thank you, Ren. I'm always glad to see that this whole cross-promotion thing works. When podcasters help to spread the word about each other's shows and listeners find cool new stuff to listen to, everyone wins. And yes, I think it is impossible to overstate the awesomeness that is Leanne Mabry. Keep an ear tuned to Metamore City for more appearances from her in the future. Jesus Christ, Chris. You're going along just fine and then you pull this crap? What kind of episode do you think this is, anyways? Come on, you can do better than this, dude. Jesus, put another episode like this one out, and I'm just going to unsubscribe. I'm sorry, I just can't take this. I can't sit This kind of quality issue, you're a better writer than that. I'm just pulling your leg, just didn't want you to get too big a head there, based on all the glowing praise you got there. All good? Bye. You are a cruel, cruel man, Nobilis. Good grief, don't scare me like that. You know how neurotically insecure we authors can be. Okay, in fairness, Nobilis did email me later that evening and tell me that he really did love the episode. But as he put it, after ten minutes of glowing, gushing praise, I figured you'd be needing a little deflation. Touché, my friend. Touché. Happily, John Merlin isn't trying to mess with my head. He recently sent in an audition for Metamore City, and at the end of it, he had this to say about my recap of Balticon. Uh, What I've got you here, um, I really, really enjoyed the latest uh, Metamore podcast. Um, It was refreshing to hear such open emotion in uh, somebody's voice in a positive way rather than it being anger, I could feel that you were welling up just uh, talking about the experience you had at the con. So uh, really enjoyed it. Keep up the good work and uh, hope to hear from you soon. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, John. I sat down to write the intro for that episode and I knew that I just couldn't do justice to the experience if I tried to write it all out beforehand. So I just turned on the mic and started talking. 
What you heard was a somewhat cleaned up version, but it was all inscripted and from the heart. And I've gotten a number of people messaging me to say how much it touched them. So, once again, thank you to all the new friends I made at Balticon for making it an experience that was worth getting mushy about. If you want to sound off on what you're hearing, you can email your audio comments to feedback at metamorcity.com. You can also call our voicemail line at 206-350-7333. If you want to get involved in conversations with other metamorphs, check out our discussion forums over at thecursed.org. And if you'd like to read my thoughts about writing, philosophy, and life in general, you can visit my new blog, World Building, which is at www.chrislester.org. You'll even find some special Metamore City content in there from time to time. That'll do it for this episode. I'll talk to you again on June 29th. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org. <laughs>